Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. When I first discovered and started using Apache Spark many years ago, a majority of the use cases I had involved unstructured text. At least at that time, that meant rolling my own natural language processing utilities, because there weren't really many tools at that point. And I've always wondered why no one bothered to create an NLP library for Spark, because many of the people I encountered had the same uh, use cases for Spark. The good news is uh, there's now a new library called Spark NLP. And in this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with one of its creators, David Talby of Pacific AI. Spark NLP actually grew out of a conversation David and I had a few years ago. And I'm glad he took that conversation and ran with it. And uh, the result is Spark NLP. We are also going to talk about uh, his longstanding interest in deploying and monitoring machine learning models in production. I hope you enjoy this episode. David Dalby, CTO of UserMind, welcome to the Data Show. Thank you, Ben. Great to be here. And also, David runs a consulting company called Pacific.ai. And uh, you guys should definitely check it out. And as you'll learn, during the course of this episode, uh, David is someone that uh, if you're in need of help in data science or data infrastructure or machine learning, is someone you might want to talk to. All right. So let's start by introducing you to the audience by going a little bit through your background. I guess rather than going through the different jobs you've uh, taken, uh, let's just kind of uh, go over quickly. So what kinds of Machine learning projects have you been involved with in the past? Uh, sure. So, so I, I really got into machine learning about eight years ago. At the time, it was with Microsoft working on Bing. Uh, we started really applying machine learning on problems like automated product categorization, uh, matching, deduplication, uh, and some data quality issues. Afterward, uh, about six years ago, I moved to a startup and we did a lot of work in the healthcare space. So uh, we did a lot of work on a, a natural language understanding of clinical notes. We did a lot of work on uh, different types of patient risk prediction, and then also a lot of work on uh, fraud. So, so essentially models of uh, anomaly detection, a lot of language processing, sometimes serious analysis on, on the different types of patient records. So overall, I've had the opportunity to you know, to, to play with many different pies and, and look at uh, quite a few different use cases of machine learning and data mining uh, over the past, let's say, eight years. So in Microsoft, it sounds like a lot of the things you were involved with involved unstructured or semi-structured text, just like uh, what you did in healthcare, I suppose. Uh, yes, just through my experience, yes, I've, I've been involved in a lot of problems that require working with unstructured text. So with Microsoft, uh, oftentimes it would be things like your know, product names, uh, product descriptions. Uh, sometimes, you know, people names, news, uh, travel uh, travel snippets. Uh, yeah, and the goal would be able to, to answer questions like, yes, what category is this product in? Are those two products the same? Uh, doing different types of attribute extraction or named entity extraction from the text that comes, you know, from a, you know, from a definition. Or very, uh, you know, also very often trying to reconcile a structured data that we get, some, you know, product attributes or price with what we extracted from the text and, and basically decide 
what is the most likely correct uh, answer. Yeah, I've had many conversations through the years and I've worked with techs myself, but sometimes I think people take for granted that domain knowledge is important, right? And I think uh, during our conversations in the past, you've pointed out that this is more so important in healthcare. Yes, definitely. Uh, one of the first things I've learned when starting to work on healthcare is really just how much building domain-specific models, even for the simplest things, made a huge difference. So as you said, things that you take for granted, like the ability to do sentence boundary detection, basically fail in healthcare because you have, you have your vital signs, you have dosage for medication, or simply you have the fact that, that in many medical records, basically the sentences are not properly structured, right? So, so you know, they're not, in many medical records that you read, about half the sentences are actually not valid, not grammatically valid sentences in English. That means that you part of speech tagger algorithms, your uh, negation detection algorithm, you name ATP recognition algorithms, you know, will very often fail uh, when, when, you know, when, you, when you try to take the generic model and, and apply them in, in those areas. And, uh, and I've seen it in other domains as well. So, so usually if you take off-the-shelf models from you know, NLTK, Open NLP, uh, usually they're trained on things like you know, either Wikipedia or Wall Street Journal articles. And those are, you know, those are all great texts. But the problem with them is that those are, you know, that's professionally written text uh, edited by professional editors, uh, which means that you, you, you get this, uh, in a sense, like abnormally correct English in terms of you know, grammar, in terms of punctuation. And then when you deal with you know, real text, if you deal with things like you know, Facebook posts, Twitter, SMS, uh, or medical record, or you know, legal language, right, which is much more longer and obscure, uh, basically you're, you're dealing with things that have a different grammar and different vocabulary, uh, which means that you really need to, do, to, to retrain your models to that specific domain. Or for that matter, uh, doctor notes, right? So those must be tough. Yes, yeah, doctor notes. Yes, it's uh, really it's uh, you know doctors have, have first of all they have their own language, uh, and uh, you know one of the first things you see is that uh, you know if you use for example uh, UMLS, which is the, the broadest uh, medical dictionary uh, that's available. Uh, so just for English, they have close to three million terms uh, between you know symptoms, diagnosis, body parts, uh, biological processes, viruses, animals, and so on. And, you know, the first time I heard this, I said, well, you know, wait a minute, doesn't English have only like, you know, half a million words? And the answer, yes, this is several times potentially bigger. Uh, the other thing, uh, that language has its own grammar. Uh, so, so that's, you know, there's basically how, how specific people like to say, uh, you know, patient pregnant, indications of uh, you know, certain condition. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, there's a lot of jargon and basically micro languages. So, so you'd have a, a handful of doctors and nurses who work together for a few years. And basically, they have you know, their own micro-language that they develop, uh, which really a model needs to learn in order to be effective at, at any level in terms of uh, text mining. So you have worn the CTO hat at various places. Uh, one thing I noticed right away is that rather than go into that chief data scientist role, you seem to wear the CTO hat. So does that mean you're also involved and interested in data engineering and data architecture? Uh, yes, definitely. For me, my, my personal interest is, is always like, you know, between the data science and algorithmic piece as well as the software engineering piece. And I think really sometimes the, the most interesting questions are really, uh, you know, it's not about how you optimize a model because, you know, you know those are very interesting questions. But, but today, really, we, we have significantly accelerated and improved the tools we have to do feature engineering, experiment and, and, and optimize the model. And I think very often still the challenge is around how do you actually take model to production? Then what happens when it is in production, right? So, so you know, how, how does so machine learning operations 
uh, where it can work successfully. So let's uh, stop there because we'll dive deep into that question later on. Now, we first met, uh, I think, uh, a few several years ago, basically through a mutual friend, but then we both found out we were both users and fans of Apache Spark. So when and why did you get interested in Spark? Yeah, so I've, I, you know, I've, I've uh, learned about Spark first, I think, in, in, you know, in, in a Strata Hadoop conference. It must have been four or five years ago, or really one of the early ones. At that time, one of the large projects we had it was building basically a patient 360 view for, for you know, one of the large uh, healthcare companies in the United States. We were uh, using MapReduce uh, because we had data about 200 million patients and uh, several billion records from several sources. And as you know, one of the core problems was that, that really with MapReduce, you spend a lot of your time reading from this and writing from this. And you know, we're doing basic profiling and so that you know, this MapReduce thing, you know, it, it, enables us, it enables us to do things in parallel and scale. Uh, but just extremely inefficient. And when Spark came about, uh, basically we we, you know, we we looked at, at just the fact that things are in memory, things are cached, uh, and and the APIs uh, you know was just had more more basic operation was easier to use, and it was very easy for us to become early adopters and and really start using it in production uh, even very early on. So you became interested in Spark. A lot of the work you were doing was involved text analysis and unstructured text. And then uh, most recently, just over the last few months, you and some friends embarked on the task of building a an NLP library specific to Spark called Spark NLP. And I think I must have aided in nudging you into building this library somehow. Yeah, I think you, yeah, you definitely get some credit there, absolutely. Um, so what is the state of NLP and Spark Aside from and then uh, and then in, let's introduce the library you guys built. So, what will a Spark user use today if they were to do NLP? Sure. So here are your two choices today. Either uh, you want to leverage all of the really performance and optimization uh, optimization that Spark gives you, meaning that you want to stay basically within the JVM and you want to use basically Java-based library. And then you know your options are you know things like Open NLP. Uh, which is open source, or Stanford NLP, which is paid for commercial projects. And those are really uh, uh, older and more academically oriented libraries. Uh, we, we, you know, so they have no limitation in terms of performance and what they do. Another option is, is to leverage something like uh, Spacey. I for Spacey is a, is a Python-based library that you know, really is, uh, you know, has, has raised the bar in terms of NLP library in, in, the, in the open source community. In terms of both usability and really trade-offs between analytical accuracy and performance, but then your challenges that you have your text in Spark, but to call a spacey, you know, pipeline, you basically have to to move the data from the JVM to the Python process, do some processing there, and send it back. Which in practice means that you take a huge performance hit because most of the processing you do is is really just you know moving strings between operating system processes. Uh, you know, which is which is really pretty crazy for the uh, you know for, for the amount of work and, and you see the performance impact. So really, what what you know what we were looking for is a solution that would enable me uh, to work on things directly within a data frame. So take into account everything that Spark gives us in terms of uh, caching, in terms of distribution and uh, other optimizations. Okay, and enable me to to uh, basically run an NLP pipeline directly on the text and also as part of a machine learning pipeline. I imagine before you embarked on uh, building the Spark NLP library, which I will place a link to in the blog post accompanying this episode, 
how much work in NLP and Spark have you done? So in other words, which of those two paths did you end up using a lot? Did you use a lot of the uh, open NLP stuff or did you go through the uh, Spark plus Spacey direction? So we, we actually, what we ended up doing was uh, starting with Spark ML. You know, within Spark 2, uh, the Spark ML uh, pipeline class and pipeline API is really intended to be uh, extended. So with specific, more specific machine learning library. And in a sense, so within the Spark ecosystem, this is so, this basically where, where an NLP pipeline uh, is intended to go because the most common use of running an NLP pipeline is to generate features for a machine learning algorithm. Right? So, so usually the entire flow is, you know, I load data, I transform it, I run an NLP pipeline, right? So let's say, I, you know, I tag or annotate, I, I do some entity extraction. Then I use those as features, as features for, you know, a machine learning algorithm. And then I do, you know, hyperparameter optimization. Once you go from the unstructured text to the large matrix, in most cases, that large matrix fits in one machine, right? Uh, yes. But, yeah, and, and, but for us, really, what, what we wanted, both in terms of performance as well as really just ease of coding, to be able to uh, basically represent this whole process from you know, data load, NL, uh, NLP, ML, and then you know, what you do with the model, like you know, cross-validation or hyperparameter optimization really within one Spark ML pipeline. What did you end up building as the key components of an NLP library? So what are the pieces that make an NLP library? The core components of an NLP library is, is the ability to take text uh, and then basically applies, uh, apply a set of annotations on the text. So the, the basic annotations we, we ship with include uh, start with the really simple things like a tokenizer, a lemmatizer, sentence boundary detection, a paragraph boundary detection. And then on top of that, building things like a part of speech tag, sentiment analysis, a spell checker, so we can auto-suggest auto corrections, a dependency parser, so we can, for example, not just know that we have a noun and a verb, but also know that this verb talks about this specific noun, which is often semantically interesting, as well as a named entity recognition algorithm. So if you're looking for you know, places, people, you know, dates, or you know, the healthcare space, you know, diseases, symptoms, allergies, we know to extract those directly from the text. How did you end up going about this? Did you look at the existing libraries and kind of drew inspiration from them? Uh, yes. So, so the, the the core concept of building an NP library is, is, an, is the concept of an annotations-based framework it has existed really since since UEMA, you know, more than a decade ago, and, and sort of been borrowed, you know, in pieces by OpenLP and by Spacey as well. So we are definitely going with the same uh, same annotation. I think other things we bought from Stacy really some of the you know some, some of the design principles are really just having a very simple API, so that's very uh, straightforward to to start using the library, understanding it. It has reasonable defaults in terms of the, the algorithms and the pipelines it uses. In terms of the API uh, itself, there's a Scala-based API, uh, so really the algorithm runs uh, really within the JVM if you do it as a Spark job. And we also made sure that uh, you can access it from Python uh, via PySpark, and all the capabilities are there. And in both cases, uh, really what we wanted to match is the, the API standards of, uh, of Spark ML. And I have to say that uh, you know, the, the Databricks team is, you know, has actually been helpful in really just you know, making sure we are on track there and also uh, directing us to where they want to go with the API to make sure that, that really what we are building is, is going to, to be and stay consistent you know, with the Spark ML API guidelines. So I'm, I, let's say I'm a Spark user. What do I need to do to use Spark NLP? Do you make it easy for me to install this on my cluster? 
Uh, yeah, so so you know it's very it's very straightforward. So it's a it's a public uh, GitHub uh, repo. You can uh, you know you just clone the repo and just just build it uh, as a jar. It's one option. Uh, the other thing that we we make available is you just a Maven asset uh, that you can take a dependency on. Uh, and uh, you know at that point really you have just the additional classes in your project and you can just start importing the classes and, and building against it. You know, right now, so, so I know you're able to do this with Scala. You also have the ability to do this with uh, Python. So there also, uh, you know, uh, there's a Python library you can uh, import and then, uh, you know, use, use as part of your project. So as far as usability, you alluded to the fact that the API is constructed in a way to be familiar to Spark users. Yes. So, so yeah. So basically, we, we took the example of Spark ML pipeline, right? And within Spark ML, you know, there is a pipeline class, and, and there's standards around, you know, how you use uh, estimators and transformers. And really, we try to stick to the same format, same, uh, you know, uh, naming convention and method naming convention. Yeah, so, so that really becomes a very natural extension of the Spark ML uh, API. So I take it then now that this is something you'll use heavily. So no longer will you have to have the spaghetti of different frameworks and components to do large-scale DEX analysis. Oh, yes, de definitely. So we, we, we all, uh, you know, I'm actually already using this in two separate projects. And actually, one of the things that we wanted to make sure we do is, is actually use this in, you know, at least a couple of projects. Because, as you know, when you build a new library and, you know, when it first hits the you know, real use case, you find out that you actually want to tweak your API or make some things, uh, you know, easier or more usable. So we've gone through this process. So, so I would say it's definitely initial release, but you know the, the code works. It is tested. It has been used in you know in, in a you know in a number of real use cases. What we are seeing. Uh, so first of all, we do not have dependencies right now. Any other libraries. So there are some algorithms we've re-implemented. Some algorithms that are really uh, new that have come up in the last couple of years that that we have taken as the the major implementation. Uh, you know we, we're seeing uh, very nice performance numbers, and you know not to call out actual time readings until we, you know, we, we do apples to apples comparison and can uh, publish benchmarks. But we are definitely seeing improvement both in terms of the actual runtime, as well as definitely in terms of developer productivity. Because as you mentioned, it's just a much simpler model. If we work on Spark, basically just, you know, it's another jar that I use. I don't have any external library. I don't need to copy my strings and learn new data structure. I definitely don't need to go to another programming language. So it's a, just, it's a more productive way uh, for me to work. You know, what this reminds me of is another library that came out of Intel called BigDL, which is a distributed deep learning in Spark. So again, there, uh, their, their goal was to make it easy for Spark users to use deep learning and uh, just stay within Spark. Definitely, it's, it's a very similar concept, right? It's taking the core Spark ML and, and extending it right in a different way. Uh, and uh, and by the way, you know, I have not met the big DL team, but I'm pretty sure I owe them, you know, I owe them a thank you. <laughs> because when, when, you know, when we spoke with Databricks, they were able to give us some, some good tips around, you know, what to look for when we expand Spark ML and, and, you know, and uh, I have good suspicion that some of those were lessons learned, you know, from when, when Intel tried this a few months before we did. So earlier, you started uh, uh, discussing this notion of going from prototype to production as far as machine learning. And actually, uh, you've been giving uh, talks at Strata on this topic. And I was able to uh, watch your uh, a version of your talk in London. And uh, I, I wrote up a post on the state of data science, and I cited a lot of uh, what you talked about. So why do people continue to underestimate this notion of taking machine learning models of production. Yeah, so so uh, I mean, it is surprising to me when I still see it. 
I think people in Israel said really very often, you know, when you put a machine learning model in production and, and you assume you're done, or very often you're making a grave mistake and, and within anywhere from, you know, one to four months, uh, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have junk predictions uh, running your production system, which is something you should know in advance. Uh, really, I, I think what's happening is that people expect basic model development to be very similar to software development. Right. And, and, you know, when we started doing software development, you know, we, we you know, really, in the sense, we started it wrong. Right. We, we started it with a you know, waterfall model because we assumed that software engineering was a lot like, you know, civil engineering or mechanical engineering. And it took a good, you know, 30 years until we said, no, this is actually not the right model. And, you know, and we tried something different. And now I think we, we so we have the same, so, you know, paradigm error. Right. Because people assume that, look, you know, this is software. You know, I, I build it, I deploy it on a machine. I, you know, I test it, I put it in production. And, you know, therefore, you know, I, I should think of it, you know, like software, right? It's something that I build, I test it, it passes, I deploy it, and, you know, it's done. It moves to ops. Well, in reality, there really is a fundamental difference because what happens is, is that really once you put a machine learning model in production, like at that point, it starts degrading in terms of accuracy, right? Because because of many, many things, right? Because the world changes, uh, because, you know, the, the, the population and the data you, you, you're uh, serving in production changes, uh, because people react and basically trying to game your model, uh, you know, because you have undocumented data dependencies on, on other systems, and uh, and really it's a different world. And I think in many cases, you, you really need to be aware of the fact uh, that when you go to production, in many cases, really, you're just starting your modeling process, you know, and, and uh, I think the more mature companies know that, yes, you need to, to establish online learning, you need to establish retrain pipelines, you need different types of, of architectures for different use cases. Uh, but, you know, when I talk about it, uh, most people are still surprised to hear it for the first time. So I think we are very early on in that journey. And there's also this notion of mission criticality, right? So as we deploy many more of these systems in mission critical situations, I think since many of these models uh, were produced by data scientists and data scientists aren't software engineers, there might be some extra QA even for the machine learning models. Yes. So, so right now, uh, I think that there are two separate problems that, that, that I see again and again. One of them is still the fact that, yes, a data scientist you know, does experimentation, looks at different features, different algorithms, different hyperparameters, comes up with a model, uh, you know, claims victory, and then you have you know, a three-month project to, to just put the model in production. Okay? Because, uh, you know, because you, you know, sometimes you actually need the software engineer to recode it. Uh, all uh, unit skills are just data scientists would not have like, you know, simply how do you build a scalable, robust service or API you know, with, with auto-scaling, with self-healing, with monitoring, with security that can actually just serve this model, right? And, you know, it could be in the form of an API, it could be, you know, uh, within a Spark job as a, as a batch setting. Uh, but there definitely is the problem of, of really just how do you technically make the model production great? Uh, so that's problem number one. Problem number two is really how do you monitor uh, that the model is actually accurate in production. Because what happens is, is you know, and, and we've seen this even like, you know, in fairly simple models. One example I'd like to give, we, we trained a model for uh, a readmissions prediction for, for healthcare. So, so we, we have all the, all the background information about the patient and we need to predict uh, which patients who, live, who are leaving the hospital are likely to come back as patients within 30 days. And, you know, we had two years of data, we had tens of millions of patients. So, so, so in a sense, it's a very simple, super machine learning problem. Okay, but then the, the issues uh, you run into is, is, yes, you can get great results in your development environment, but once you put something in production, really within weeks, you degrade from F scores of, you know, mid-80s to really to low 60s because, you know, the hospital changes, the guidelines change, the seasonality, 
there's locality impact, there's, there's data that changes, not because of systems, but because of people who, who, you know, who do different things, who fill forms in different ways, and, uh, and you keep those problems. What you need is some sort of dashboard that helps people monitor kind of statistical metrics, right? So statistical and business metrics that are being uh, affected by the model. Yes, uh, precisely. And, and you see like that, you know, bigger companies like, you know, if you look at papers from, you know, from Google or Microsoft or Facebook, they basically suggest exactly that and they even call out some of the metrics that, that work for them. Uh, yeah, and, and the, the core issue is, is exactly as, as you said. Although in, in your talk, you point out that actually, even if you do that, sometimes it is hard to even determine what to measure. Uh, very. Well, and, and what's hard is, is often, uh, you know, the, the, I'll say the human angle of it. Right. So here's what happens. Basically, the, the, you know, the, the model should be that just like, you know, just the way that I have my machine monitoring, right? So I need to know when servers are down, when I'm running out of disk or memory, right? And, and just like, you know, if I have a large, you know, ETL system, I need some data quality alerts and data quality pipeline. Basically, we're saying, yes, I need monitoring for, for my machine learning because I need to know what is my accuracy, you know, in production. Okay. The problem comes when you try to define how do I measure that exactly, right? Because, uh, for example, let's say I, you know, let's say I train a model that tries to predict, you know, uh, if a given picture is a cat or not a cat, right? Or, you know, obviously it could mean, you know, whether a different case is suspected to be fraudulent or whether a patient is at risk, right? Or, or whether I should approve or not approve a loan. Okay, but let's say we go with cats, and let's say when I trained, you know, 40% of the pictures were cats and 60% were not cats. Okay, so, uh, you know, th those are my priors and that's probably the distribution of my measurement set, right? So my, my good labels that I measure accuracy against. Now, what happens is if in production, let's say this ratio changes. So now I'm seeing, you know, 70% cats and 30% non-cats. The problem is now, basically my accuracy metrics are wrong because my accuracy metrics are, are, are based on, a, you know, this nice golden set that does not actually represent what's happening in production, right? And, and you'll see this segregation. Uh, so, so there's a lot of these uh, sort of fine-print statistical uh, uh, aspects that happen uh, that today really require human domain experts and data scientists uh, to, to really be able to uh, measure and understand uh, such an impact. Yeah, and, and this is one area, I think, where people who have some training in statistics might have a leg up over the pure machine learning people. Oh yes, definitely yes, and I've, I've and you know I've had the same experience where, where you know you, you go from as you say from from really being that machine learning person and thinking in terms of uh, you know feature engineering, spinning with different models, uh, but when you get to things like uh, really A/B testing or uh, how do I measure uh, you know things like model decay, you go back to to, to core statistical concepts, right? Like you know, how, how do I do hypothesis hypothesis testing correctly, right? How do I do multivariate testing correctly? And, and I've definitely seen, I've seen quite a few people uh, that are, you know, excellent machine learning engineers, you know, can, can spend, you know, within two or three weeks can, can go through, you know, tens of different neural network architectures, but, but basically fail on the basic A-B testing where it's, you know, a, a basic hypothesis testing, so first-year statistics, uh, because they, they miss some of the underlying assumptions that those uh, tests make. By the way, so, you know, from my perspective, so this notion of understanding what happens to a model after you deploy it or or just deploying a model, making it production-grade code to deploy and then monitoring it are important. But data is also important, right? So having good, clean data, having nice features, having access to nice uh, training data. So I think that what I'm seeing is that companies are moving towards an environment where data scientists in many ways are aided at both stages, right? So they have a source of truth. Maybe they have a place where they can look at 
data that's been cleaned up. Uh, in some places, they even have a library of features. And then uh, they also have tools for building a model and then tools for deploying it to production and then tools for monitoring it to production. But I think that's still kind of a, probably like 1% of companies at this point, right? Yes, uh, yes. So I think in many cases, yes, it's more of an idealized uh, case. But for example, the you know, a recent blog post that you, know, you showed me about Uber's uh, Michelangelo framework, right, shows, you know, I think a good view about, you know, how does it look like, you know, two or three years in. And, you know, two of the interesting things they've done is actually build a shared feature store, right, on top of a shared data store, right, so that if I come in as a data scientist, the environment is set up, I have access to, to basically sort of semi-curated data sets. And I also have access to a, a you know, curated set of features. Is, you know, and, many and, of the, and, and then they allow you to add features to this feature store. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that is very important in practice uh, because, you know, some features are, are simple. You know, I sum up numbers or I take an average. Uh, but, but some of the features are actually hard to calculate in production. Right. So, so if, for example, if I have a feature that, that looks at, a, a, you know, a, a derivative or change in behavior over time in a time series, Right, or, or if I try to look at some, you know, graph analysis feature, how many people I'm connected to, some of the things are actually hard to calculate efficiently in production. Right, when you know, when I need to render a web page or a mobile page, and I need to calculate things in like 50 milliseconds, uh, which means that if one team took the effort to actually implement uh, this kind of efficient feature calculation, definitely want they want others to be able to use it. Yes, uh, yeah, and they also. Uh... They and some other companies are also taking seriously this whole notion that you have to monitor a model once it uh, goes in production. Oh yes, and 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 I understand why because look, when when I started out, I didn't think about it either. But you know, for better or worse, you know, I worked at the company where we actually took ownership of the end result, right? So so for us, it you know, we it wasn't that we 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 had to ship a model, right? That, that say for example identifies you know a potentially fraudulent medical claims. Right, it's that you know we were measured on like how many actually actual fraudulent claims you know do we uncover, uh, right? And, and and then you know what you see, and, and I'm sure it's the same thing that you know teams at Google have seen and, and reported on, teams that you know Microsoft have seen and reported on, is that you put up your model, and you know you, you on the first day you get the same numbers that you got you know in your development environment, and then very quickly it deteriorates, right? And very quick means like within a few weeks. Right, so this is not two or three years later when your know, business processes change. So for us, it was more out of business necessity to kind of say, look, we need to understand what's going on. And once we understand, and for them in fraud, basically what happens is, you know, as soon as you start catching people, they change their behavior and they try different ways around, you know, around the schemes you catch well. You understand that you need to very quickly have return pipelines, right, and be able to to get to to, to learn from feedback and experiment very quickly. So in your, uh, since, since you're now uh, run a consulting company, Pacific.ai, you've been talking more to decision makers and C-level people. So what's the level of, of awareness around these issues? I would say right now it's it's low. You know, many people, especially on the business decision maker side, have an understanding that, you know, they own data assets, right? Uh, they, you know, they, they know, you know, if they had a model, they, they understand how they could potentially monetize and make money. They do not understand basically all the, the engineering, all the operational processes, uh, these stakes. Uh, the other thing that happens is that really most software engineering teams, uh, basically people who have not done this before, uh, do not understand this well, because I think really as, as, as a community and the industry, we are very early on into this. So I would say definitely it's early, uh, but I would say, you know, when, when, you know these are the kind of things where, you know, once I explain it and, and once I give the example, 
you know, people definitely get it. I think that the more we the more we teach it, uh, the, the faster it catches on, and uh, the faster we can solve the problem as a as a community. So let's uh, let's close this conversation by going back to your uh, recent library, Spark NLP. So what is the status, and uh, are you open to people contributing? Oh, de- definitely, definitely. You know, we have just open sourced it. We are going to present it really alongside Spacey, uh, you know, in at uh, Stratton, New York. And it's Spark Summit Europe, but, but really, uh, other than that, we you know we, we are using it in several projects. We we have a couple of people already showing interest in using it in their own projects. But but definitely, we are looking for contributors. Uh, we are looking for users. Uh, we are looking for feedback. And you know, it's a, you know it's an Apache license library, and, and the goal is really to have you know to have a strong Spark NLP library uh, that you know that the community can use and enjoy. And we we are you know we are very much looking for for contributors for and for any other feedback uh, that would help move this forward. And to our listeners out there, uh, I always want to remind people, you can contribute to open source projects in a variety of ways. And one critical way is to help with documentation, because documentation is really very important to many of these projects. Definitely. And and I, I would say that, you know, even with the first few people, you know, we've tried this with, you know, we, we thought we had some documentation and they, you know, they explained to us what wasn't there. Uh, because you know, one of the gaps, you know, when you build something for a few months, in a sense, it's uh, you know sometimes just it's just hard to see what you know what, what the first impression is and what what's what's really lacking. So we would definitely appreciate uh, any help in that re- in that respect. Well, thank you, uh, David Dalby, for speaking with us. And thank you, Ben, very much for having me on the show. You can follow David Dalby on Twitter at David Dalby. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show. You can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.